fourth night together looking at is there a conflict between science and religion. I'd like to share with you a little bit of my background. Prior to being a priest, um, I was a medical doctor um, and a subspecialist in children's surgery. Um, but not only was I interested uh, in medicine and more specifically in surgery and more specifically in in microsurgery or nanosurgery or sometimes called laser surgery or laparoscopic and thoracoscopic surgery in, in newborns. Um, that was really for the focus of my interest. I also had another niche interest in epidemiology and statistics and how to study rare outcomes in rare diseases. And quite frankly, I was one of the few people in the world who is making a scientific career out of that. So, by all kind of counts, you could call me a scientist. I wasn't a molecular biologist. I did that for uh, a year and a half and I really didn't like it. My sister did that and did a master's in it and in human genetics and so on. So I kind of come from that world. And I kind of don't really like the question, is there a conflict between science and religion? I kind of prefer the question, it of can science and religion coexist? Maybe I'm splitting hairs, but I found that in me, as a person who was a believer, not a priest at the time, and as a scientist, they seemed to co coexist in me as a person, but I needed to make them coexist in my head or prove that they couldn't. And hence my journey, my personal journey of determining is there indeed a conflict between science and religion and can they coexist or do I have to live like two alternate realities? So the origins of this conflict are very, very simple. We can reduce them to two or maybe three major things. Historically, the church was very much opposed to science initially. And there are examples of that, such as Galileo, the 17th century Italian astronomer, who was tried and condemned and lived the rest of his life in house arrest for the last few years of his life. And we don't have to go as far back as the 1600s. In 1925, John Scopes, a high school teacher from Tennessee, was prosecuted and that he had been violating state law by teaching the theory of evolution, even in the 20th century. That said, um, in recent times, there have been some advances and, and um, people over the ages, and we're going to discuss that at length, have believed in both science and religion. Science explains everything that was once explained by God. That is also another claim that um, is commonly said, and people have said it in much more complicated terms and give and there are many examples and we'll discuss a few of them and the natural corollary of that is that belief in God may have been necessary at one point but now it is redundant so that's another sort of big idea that would support a conflict between science and religion and the last one is that the results of recent science discoveries disprove things that have been taught about religion and about the origin of the world for, for, for ages, and hence there is a conflict between science and religion. So we'll kind of look at all three of these different things, not so much specifically in this order, but 
kind of gives you a little bit of a framework of what we'll talk about. T.H. Huxley, a biologist and agnostic philosopher, says, The doctrine of evolution, if consistently accepted, makes it impossible to believe in the Bible. But others have different opinions. Thomas Torrance says, Science cannot begin its work except by acts of faith. Michael Pogliani, a 17th and 18th century scientist, says, One philosopher, uh, 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 sorry, says, he, su he suggests that the vast delusion which of Western thinking has uh, suffered since Descartes and his idea that human beings have a spectator's privilege of looking at the world from the outside in a non-committed way without personal, per any personal commitments at all. This is not the same thing as saying that knowledge is subjective, but it is a very, di very different to the ideals of scientific objectivism. For, for, for Pogliani, Belief and intuition are a source of knowledge from which acts of discovery arise. No human intelligence can operate outside such a context of faith because it is that framework of belief which guides and controls our interpretation of data. Such an emphasis unmasks the illusion that science is a separate, superior kind of knowledge. Said otherwise, Albert Einstein says, the mechanics of discovery are neither logical nor intellectual. It is a sudden illumination, almost a rapture. Later, to be sure, intelligence analyzes and experiments confirm or invalidate the intuition. But initially, there is a great forward leap of imagination. What are these people saying? They're saying that somehow there is a relationship between faith or belief or holding a conviction towards something for which you do not have solid proof and science. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, as well. Specifically in that, and this is kind of the scientific method for those of you who are scientists or remember your grade six science, uh, I, I hate to bore you, um, and, but uh, for those of you who are not, just a quick reminder of like wh whatever it was, grade five or grade six science. So we make observations, and from those observations, we develop questions. Those questions then lead to hypotheses, uh, an idea or a thought which has not yet been proven. And we can do research to see, has anyone else asked this question? What, how did they try to answer the question? What conclusions did they arise to? Were there, was their testing relevant to um, our current methods of testing now? Is the population or people that they were testing the same as the people that I'm testing? That was very much the focus of my research. Was that you we you'd find in medicine many studies get done, but they get done on very specific populations. And can you extrapolate the findings that happened in one population to another population? Can you extrapolate findings in older children to younger children to newborns and so on? So. You can do all that kind of research, and then you experiment. From your experiments, you collect data, and from your d data, you, you, you come to a conclusion. But notice, all of this starts with an observation and a question. And that question, if indeed it is unique, or new, or, or, or something that hasn't been thought of, or haven't been thought of in that way before, then necessarily it arises from the realm of imagination. Like logically, logically, if someone else has 
written all about this and you've read about it and now you're asking the same question, then it's not something you imagined, right? But if you're asking a novel question that has never been asked before and you're going to discover something that has never been discovered before, necessarily that question arises from the realm of imagination. Or it certainly doesn't arise from the realms of proven fact, right? So all of this lends, lends credence to even scientists believe in what they're trying to prove or disprove. Otherwise, they wouldn't go to the trouble of trying to prove it or to disprove it. It's also been said that Christianity has somewhat paved the way for science. How? Christianity is a monotheistic belief. That means that it believes in only one God and hence believes in a certain uniformity of how the world works. That means that the world is not random. There's sort of one governing body um, and that governing body is rational and so naturally all the laws fit together. You won't discover one scientific discovery that will then be disproven by another one and both of them are correct. Either one of them is correct or the other one is. These are very kind of commonly accepted things in science, but they have very much to do with the idea of there being some natural order of an intelligible world. There's also the belief in a transcendent God. What is meant by that? A God which is beyond matter. So if God is matter, then matter becomes un unstudiable. Also, if matter is inherently evil, then you probably wouldn't want to study it. You would probably want to get as far away from it as you could. So the fact that Christianity b believes in a transcendent God and believes in a, in a, uh, that matter is inherently good, not inherently evil, all of these things have encouraged scientists to study the natural world. C.S. Lewis says, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. Towards the, the third point of, the tra of a transcendent God, John Pokenhorn, who we'll talk about a little bit later, says the Christian doctrine of creation provided an essential matrix for the coming into being of scientific enterprise. Peter Hodgson, an Oxford professor of nuclear physics, wrote, Christianity provided just those beliefs that are essential for science and the whole moral climate that encouraged its growth. Herbert Butterfield, another scientist, says science is the child of Christian thought. John McMurray, a philosopher, says science is the legitimate child of a great religious movement and its genealogy goes back to Christ. This slide wasn't intended for you to be able to read, but intended to demonstrate that over, over history, from the early um, origins of science to the middle ages of science to current living scientists, there are hundreds of scientists who are not only Christians and not only believers and faithful, but also actually believe in creation itself. These are all scientists that believe in creation. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And if you want to read more about that, you can find um, stuff on a website called Answering Genesis uh, 
uh, .org, creation scientists. This is the historical list, and they have a contemporary list and stuff like that. So, just to say that not for all of history has there been a perceived conflict between Christianity and between religion. For example, Nicholas Copernicus, who lived in the 15th and 16th centuries, laid the foundations of modern astronomy and scientific revolution and described God as the best and most orderly workman of all. Galileo was a mathematician and physicist um, and the founder of mechanics and experimental physics. And he's the one who came up with the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe. And he was a devout Catholic and a Christian. And he said there are two big books, the book of nature and the book of supernature, that is the Bible. Johannes Kepler was the founder of modern physics and a mathematician and astronomer. And he said uh, that um, thinking, he was only thinking God's thoughts after him. Perhaps the greatest scientist of all time, Sir Isaac Newton of the 17th and 18th centuries, who described the laws of gravity and the fields of optics, astronomy, differential calculus, and so on, believed that no sciences were better attested to than religion and the Bible. And he was both a theologian and a scientist, and wrote in both of those domains. Michael Faraday of the, 17th, of the 18th and 19th centuries was one of the greatest scientists of his time, and he discovered the phenomenon of electromagnetic magnetic induction, was the first to produce an electrical current in a magnetic field, and he said that Christian faith was the single most inf important influence upon him. Robert Boyle, who gave the name to Boyle's Law, Joseph, uh, Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister, Gregor Mendel, from whom we got genetics, Lord Kelvin, James Maxwell, all of these were Christians and were also scientists. So the question really is, is it possible for science and religion, or science and Christianity specifically, to actually learn from each other? Well, one of the leading scientists of our generation, John Polkinghorne, who is, was the president of Queen's College in Cambridge, and later on became like, the personal in-house scientific authority for the Queen, says, Men of religion can learn from science what the physical world is really like in its structure and long-evolving history. This constrains what religion can say where it speaks of that world as God's creation. He is clearly a patient God who works not through a process and not uh, who works through process and not by magic. Men of science can receive from religion a deeper understanding than could be obtained from science alone. The physical world's deep mathematical intelligibility, the signs of the mind behind it, and its finely tuned fruitfulness that are expressive of divine purpose are reflections of the fact that it is a creation. But another question that really plagues people on a personal level, but also on a philosophical level is, can miracles really exist? Do they really exist? And is it even possible for miracles to really exist? Some say that nothing can contravene nature's universal laws. And these aren't new ideas. They date back to the 17th century with Spinoza, and they go to Stephen Hawking in our current day and age now. However, it's a bit of a circular argument to say that miracles don't exist because they cannot exist. 
If the laws of nature are completely uniform, then the supernatural is ruled out from the start, and it is impossible to believe in miracles, no matter how strong the evidence is. A little bit more about miracles has been said in a different way. Faith in miracles must yield ground step by step before the steady and firm advance of the forces of science, and its total defeat is undoubtedly a matter of time. What Max Planck is saying is that in ancient times, people believed things because they didn't really have any other way to explain them. Once science has discovered things, now we know that, oh, it wasn't actually a miracle, it was done in this and that way. However, that doesn't really make sense for everything that people have believed to be a miracle in ancient times. In ancient times, it was believed that a virgin gave birth to a child. It is still believed until now that that is, could only be something in the realm of the miraculous. Someone rising from the dead. These things have not been disproven. They were believed in ancient times, and they continue to be believed now. C.S. Lewis says that belief in miracles is far from depending on an ignorance of the laws of nature. In fact, it is only possible insofar as those laws are known. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that believing in, a, in miracles is not only for the ignorant, because if they were ignorant to the laws of nature, they wouldn't know that this is supernatural in the first place because they don't know what the laws of nature are. They would have to know what the boundaries of nature are to be able to then say, this is outside of those boundaries. This is supernatural. This is a miracle. So the real question here is not, is there miracles or aren't there, but is, <coughs> is there really a God? And philosophy and science alone are not able to answer this question. However, they can lend certain hints or clues to it. Let's look at another, another issue that people have, which is evolution. A lot of the theory of evolution is still considered to be theoretical. For example, there is a concept of microevolution and macroevolution. Again, for the scientists in the room, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but for those who are very much gifted in other fields of life, you know, I'll just kind of clue you clue you into these terms that that like we science geeks like like to use. Microevolution is the idea that things can evolve within a species. Macroevolution is the idea that one species can evolve into another one. There is very little doubt in the scientific community and in really, forgive me, any um, well-read and thoughtful community that microevolution exists. I mean, it, it affects us on, on many, many different levels. The simple example I can give from my past life is the development of superbugs. So in hospitals, they're really worried that bacteria are learning how to work around, specifically bacteria, but any, any microbes of any, of, uh, in general, um, are learning how to work around our, our current therapies against them, for example, antibiotics. So as, an, as a bacteria develops a resistance to an antibiotic, we come up with other antibiotics. But the problem is that some bugs become, some bacteria become resistant to one antibiotic and another one resistant to another antibiotic. And if they trade 
If they trade genetic code and become one of them becomes resistant to all the common forms of our antibiotics or the, the, for, the common forms that, of our antibiotics that we use the most commonly, that will make our lives both very impractical and very expensive and potentially very dangerous. So we try to separate these bacteria from each other because we know that they're able to learn from each other. So this concept of microevolution of evolution within a species is very well is very well accepted. However, the idea of macroevolution of the the, the you know the the amoeba that becomes, you, you, you know, like a, a small organism that becomes a salamander, that becomes a frog, that becomes a, that becomes a, you know, a, a mammal, that becomes a, a monkey, that becomes an ape, that becomes a human. That idea of cross-species evolution is really highly in question and has, I, we can say, never or almost never actually been able to be reproduced in the lab. There's another issue, and this applies to, to, to certain parts of theories of evolution, is that science seems to improve with time. We prove things, and then we realize that the things we proved weren't perfect, and we go and either refine them or disprove them. Newtonian physics is a really good example of that. In fact, um, I have the, here, like just cruising the web, the top ten theories that have been disproven. And we'll just watch a quick video about that now. century scientists believed to exist somewhere between Mercury and the Sun. The mathematician, the urbane Jean-Joseph Leverrier, first proposed its existence after he and many other scientists were unable to explain certain peculiarities about Mercury's orbit. Scientists like Leverrier argued that this had to be caused by some objects, like a small planet or moon, acting as a gravitational force. Leverrier called his hypothetical planet Vulcan after the Roman god of fire. Soon, amateur astronomers around Europe, eager to be a part of a scientific discovery, contacted Leveria and claimed to have witnessed the mysterious planet making its transit around the Sun. 
For years afterward, Vulcan sightings continued to pour in from around the globe, and when Leveria died in 1877, he was still regarded as having discovered a new planet in the solar system. How it was proven wrong. Without Leveria acting as a cheerleader for Vulcan's existence, it suddenly began to be doubted by many notable astronomers. The search was effectively abandoned in 1915, after Einstein's theory of general relativity helped to explain, once and for all, why Mercury orbited the Sun in such a strange fashion. But amateur stargazers continued the search, and as recently as 1970, there have been people who have claimed to see a strange object orbiting the Sun beyond Mercury. Amusingly, the entire would-be discovery's greatest legacy today is that it inspired the name of the home planet of the character Spock from Star Trek. So Number positive. 9. Spontaneous Generation this is one of my Although favorites. it might seem a bit ludicrous today, for thousands of years it was believed that life regularly arose from the elements without first being formed through a seed, egg, or other traditional means of reproduction. The main purveyor of the theory was Aristotle, who based his studies on the ideas of thinkers like Anaximander, Hippolytus, and Anaxagoras, all of whom stressed the way in which life could spontaneously come into being from inanimate matter like slime, mud, and earth when exposed to sunlight. Aristotle based his own ideas on the observation of the way maggots would seemingly generate out of dead animal carcasses, or barnacles would form on the hull of a boat. This theory, that life could literally spring from nothing, managed to persist for hundreds of years after Aristotle, and was even being proposed by some scientists as recently as the 1700s. How it was proven wrong? It was only with the adoption of the scientific method that many of the classical theories, like spontaneous generation, began to be tested. Once they were, they quickly crumbled. For example, famed scientist Louis Pasteur showed that maggots would not appear on meat kept in a sealed container, and the invention of the microscope helped to show that these same insects were formed not by spontaneous generation, but by airborne microorganisms. Number eight. We um, don't necessarily have to go through all of them. You can leave the lights off because we'll play another clip right, um, right now. But then we still have the question of how can we really reconcile the early accounts of Genesis of creation with, uh, with what, you know, some form of evolution. And the idea and fossil evidence that the, that the earth is older than six and a half thousand years old. Um, there was a movie that came out not too long ago called Noah, which was a story of, from the um, Old Testament scriptures. Um, or at least a modernized, uh, modern, you know, version of it. Um, and in this story, Noah tells his family how the world was created. Let's see what his version says. Let me tell you a story. The first story my father told me and the first story that I told each of you.
So you don't have to watch the rest of the movie to see how it goes. Um, but this sort of account of creation, if I could comment, is slightly different from the account that um, people who interpret the first two chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, who interpret it literally would say. They would say that God created the world in a literal six days, whereas what was sort of depicted here was that the first four days, since the, the sun and the moon didn't exist for the first four days, they were created on the fourth day, then those first four days could have lasted for as long as millions and billions of years, which would have given the time for things to, for things to evolve. However, if we are going to try to reconcile evolution and Christian thought, there are four thoughts that remain necessary, four things that like, we kind of can't let go of in Christianity. And everything else of how and, and why and th things came to be could be negotiable. Those are that there is an origin, that something was created out of nothing. Matter did not pre-exist matter. 
The second thing is that God is intelligent and rational and relatable and that he is at the origin. That doesn't ex exclude the possibility of the Big Bang. It simply says that God did the Big Bang and he did it on purpose. The third thing is that human beings are made in the image of God. Simply the idea that human beings are somewhat different somehow and discussing how could take us to the end of the month. Um, different from the rest of creation. And the fourth thought is that the observed, observable natural world that we currently live in is different from the world that God created. There has been some fall, some brokenness, some original sin or ancestral sin or something like that. Pope John Paul II says, the sciences of observation describe and measure the multiple manifestations of life with increasing precision and correlate them with the timeline. The moment of transition into the spiritual cannot be the object of this kind of observation. The experience of metaphysical knowledge, of self-awareness and self-reflection, of moral conscience, of freedom, or again of aesthetic, like things that are beautiful, and religious experience falls within the competence of philosophical analysis and reflection while theology brings out its ultimate meaning according to the Creator's plans. Simply said, Pope John Paul is saying, there are some things that cannot be studied by science, like emotion and love and beauty. And these are philosophical, but finding meaning in science and in these things, that is the realm of theology. The major patron of the Big Bang Theory, Stephen Hawking, has something similar to say. He makes the point that about, about the Big Bang and about creation, that if the density of the universe one second after the Big Bang had been greater by one part in a thousand billion, the university would have recollapsed after ten years. On the other hand, if the density of the universe at, the at that time had been less by the, by the same amount, the universe would have essentially been empty when it was ten years old. How was it that the initial density of the universe was chosen so carefully? Maybe there is some reason why the universe should have precisely the critical density. Of course, he has later come up with other theories of how the universe would have been able to correct itself to have the critical density to then have the Big Bang. But nonetheless, the idea that things are the way they are because they must be just so is even accepted by the most eminent atheist scientists. Professor Chandra, um, I can't pronounce her name fully, um, who comes from an agnostic and Hindu background, says that the chances that life just occurred on Earth are just about as unlikely as a typhoon blowing through a junkyard and constructing a Boeing 747. This is oftentimes, um, these statements, this and many other, are oftentimes referring to the idea of intelligent design. However, even this concept of intelligent design is not, most, uh, is not accepted amongst all uh, creationists or all people who believe in creation. But the idea is simply that there is some design, some intelligence that is behind the created universe. Albert Einstein, writing from his own Jewish and agnostic background, says a legitimate conflict between science and religion simply cannot exist. Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. 
Others have said, unfortunately, for the scientifically minded, God is not discoverable nor demonstrable by purely scientific means. But that, real that really proves nothing. It simply means that the wrong instruments are being used for the job. Simply said, in the Gospel of John, it says, No one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten, he has revealed him. God can only be known in the full extent that he is known in Christianity through the revelation of Jesus Christ. But that said, it doesn't mean that God cannot be known at all without Jesus. In fact, the Psalms say, and many of the fathers afterwards have said, like St. Athanasius, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Simply said that all of creation is testifying to a creator. St. Paul says similar things in Romans and in Acts and otherwise. Charles Darwin says that the impossibility of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe, including man as a result of blind chance or necessity... When thus reflecting, I feel compelled to look to a first cause, having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of a man, I, and if so, I deserve to be called a theist. Even Stephen Hawking, arguably the most brilliant sci scientist of our generation, has said science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question of why. Why does the universe even bother to exist? Simply said... The main point of religion is not to answer the questions of how and when, those are scientific questions, but the questions of why and who, theological questions. The Bible is not primarily a scientific book, but a theological one. God bless you. Enjoy your discussions.